Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In this message series, uh, we are looking at heroes in the Bible, individuals who did something heroic and what we can learn from them. Now, my relationship with superheroes began like it does for most kids. I was captivated by the thought of flying like Superman or swinging from buildings like Spider-Man. Now, I was kind of a scrawny kid growing up, so my favorite superhero was the Hulk. I loved imagining my scrawny body being transformed from the nerdy Bruce Banner type into the powerful Hulk. But of course, as I grew up, my hero focus shifted from the comic book heroes uh, to real people that I admired and imagined maybe growing up to be like. And that's because I realized, you know, I'd never be able to fly or swing from buildings. I definitely wasn't ever going to be the Hulk. But just maybe I could become wealthy like Mark, someone I knew. Or maybe I could lead a great church like Bill. But while my new heroes were real, I began to learn over time that these real heroes were weaker than I thought. Now, not all of my heroes, but most of my heroes from my 20s and 30s have fallen. Most recently, just a couple of months ago. And I have learned that what really makes a person great is not what they accomplish or how rich or how famous they become, but who they become on the inside. That's what really matters. That's what makes someone truly heroic. And if, like me, you have soured on the heroes of this world and you're looking for real heroes, I highly recommend the heroes of the Bible. Now, they were ordinary people like us who are full of flaws. They faced many of the same internal struggles that we face over the course of life. But each of these individuals decided to take an approach to life that is very uncommon, an approach that is important for us to understand and emulate. Last week, Elliot began this Heroes message series by looking at uh, Gideon in the Bible. And we, uh, we learned from Gideon, he was an individual who chose to not focus just on the one-dimensional fears that he could see in this world, but he decided to do the unusual. And he decided to fear God and take the invisible God that he could not see more seriously than all that he could see. Today, the hero example is Abraham. Now, Abraham is called in the Bible the father of faith, not because, of course, he invented faith, but because he is the one that God often points to in the Bible as a great example of faith. Now, God doesn't just point to Abraham and say, try to be more like him, would you? No, he, he points to Abraham primarily as an example of how faith grows. Abraham didn't just wake up one day with a deep trust in God. It was developed over time. In fact, it started pretty weak. And the way Abraham's faith grew primarily was through testing, through trials. Now, one of the principles of life that we know is this. If you don't use it, you lose it. So if you stop using your muscles, you stop exercising, your muscles are going to atrophy. If you stop learning, stop reading, your mind is going to grow dull. So when it comes to the, the faith muscle, when is the faith muscle most exercised? Well, it's whenever we face difficulties, trials. Now, we all wish that we could stay in shape without exercising. We all wish that our minds would stay sharp without learning. And really, we all wish that we could learn to trust God without trials, but it just doesn't work that way. The test of life will come for all of us. And so it's best to prepare for them. 
Now, it'd be great if God would give us all of the test questions that we're going to face in life in advance, and, and more importantly, tell us exactly when they're going to come so we could be ready for them. But of course, that wouldn't be a real test. And so God, instead, he points to the test questions of those who have gone before us. And in particular, he points to Abraham, and he says, you're going to want to be very familiar with the questions that were on this test, because you're going to see these questions. Maybe the particulars would be different, but the categories, well, you're going to face these tests. The timing is going to be a surprise for all of us, but not the content, not the categories. And Abraham's faith test, along with several other faith tests, are summarized for us in the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 11. And so we're going to take a peek at Abraham's test of faith as described in the passage in Hebrews chapter 11. And it reveals three categories of faith tests that we're all going to experience. Again, the particulars will be unique to us. The timing will be a surprise, but we're all going to face these same kinds of faith tests. The first category is the security test. This occurs whenever life gets scary. Now, after the Great Flood, several hundred years after the Great Flood, not much had changed in the world. The majority of people were still very evil. So God decided to take a different approach, and he decided to form a new nation that would represent him and his truth to the world. And he selected Abraham to be the father of that nation. And he told Abraham to leave his home and go to a place that would be the future home of this new nation. Here's how it's described in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac, his son, Jacob, his grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, when Abraham obeyed God and uprooted his family and moved to the promised land, you have to understand that was a very different kind of move than it is for someone like in our time to uproot their families and move maybe across the country. That's a big move for us, but it was a huge move in ancient culture. Abraham is 75 when God tells him to pack up and get going. So this would have been probably... The, the pinnacle of Abraham's wealth and security in this culture. And in the ancient world, there were no bank branches to transfer your money to, to a different location. You had to bring it all with you. And there were no police to protect you along the way or in the cities that you encountered. And so a move like this involved packing up your entire net worth, which was mostly livestock, and together with the people you love, head out into the desert where water and food were scarce, and raiding bands of thieves were plentiful. So this was a sure way to lose everything that you had worked for and everyone that you loved. And the trip wasn't the only risk that he was facing. He was going to a place that it says he didn't know anything about. In fact, all he had from God really was a compass setting. You know, would there be food in this new place? Would there be adequate water in this new place? He really didn't know. Would there be a powerful warlord or maybe a king of a nation that would see his stuff and kill him and those he loved to get this stuff? He didn't know. This is why only armies and armed bands of men would venture out from the protection of their homes and their fortified cities in the ancient world. 
Never women and children and livestock. You would never do this. So why did Abraham do what God had said, even at great risk to himself and those he loved? Well, the key is the last verse in the one we just read in Hebrews 11. It's because he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What this is describing is that Abraham had come to the point in his life where he realized that everything he had worked for, now at 75, everything he'd worked for in his life really wasn't built on a lasting foundation. He knew how temporary everything is in this life. In an instant, he understood, I I can lose everything, everything that I love and everything that I've worked so hard for. And he also realized the only thing that really, really lasts is what God builds. And so he decided to obey God no matter what. And we face the same kind of decision today. It may not be a big decision like this, but we face these decisions over and over again. Will I do what God says and put some things that I've worked for really hard maybe at risk? We see the only way to build a life that will last into eternity is to build it on the foundation that God sets. But the challenge is until we get to that city, the heavenly city, we need to live in one of these. You know, an earthly city, an earthly place. And in this city, we have real pressing needs. We have the need for provision. We have the need for security. And so the question that we face over and over again, if we're going to follow God and develop faith in him, is will I trust in God's protection? This is how the question comes. Will I trust in God's protection in this? How about now? And this is not so much a yes or a no question. You may be sitting here and thinking, yes, I will. Well, that doesn't answer that question sitting in this room. It's really more of a more or less question. Will you trust God more than this or less than that? You know, will I trust in God's provision more than my career or my bank account, if it comes to that? Will I trust in God's physical protection more than in my healthy diet or in medical science? Will I trust more in God's grace in my children's life or more in my parenting ability? Behind these questions, the more or less questions is this, is my faith in God kind of more of an add-on feature to my life or is it the real foundation? Is it a supplemental protection plan, kind of a rider on the policy that I've really written with my own abilities and skills, or, or is it at the very depth, the core that I'm really standing on? Well, you can't answer these questions with words. You can only answer them in the circumstances that you face and that I face. You know, you, you lose a job and your bank account takes a hit. How do you respond? Do you, do you respond in fear? Do you respond in anger? Or do you eventually turn to God in faith and cry out and ask for his help and provision? You get a diagnosis of cancer. Do you find more peace in the percentages and the odds that the doctors will tell you based on the kind of cancer that you have and the stage that it is? Or do you find more peace as you look to the one who gives every breath that you get to take? Your child, let's say, does the incredibly stupid and just breaks your heart. Do you alternate between blaming yourself, something else you could have done, or blaming your child? Or do you cry out to the one, the only one who can really change a heart? Now, if we're honest, the test results on these kinds of questions 
are rarely good. And honestly, it wasn't really that good for Abraham when he faced these questions initially. Abraham arrives to the promised land just in time for a severe famine. Everybody's starving. Everybody's scrambling for food. And that's not good. He survived the trip, but now there's no food. Now, what would go through your mind if you were in Abraham's position? Well, probably what went through his mind. I trusted God, and, and now there's no food for my family, for my livestock. Can I really trust in God's provision? Had to be a big question in his mind. Well, they have to go on to Egypt to find food. There's no food there. And at the border of Egypt, they run into Pharaoh and his army, and they get a peek. we get a peek into Abraham's state of faith at this point. Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 12, 11 through 13. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you're my sister, so I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Does that sound like the father of faith to you? <laughs> this is bad. This is weak. This doesn't sound like a guy who's trusting in God's protection. And you can probably understand why he's struggling. I mean, God hadn't come through with the food they needed, so Abraham was doubting whether God would come through with the protection they now needed. So, because of what Abraham says about Sarah not being his wife, Pharaoh does recognize the beauty of Sarah and adds her to his harem. But before he can call her into his bedchamber, God strikes the household of Pharaoh with a disease. And Pharaoh recognizes this, there's something strange about this. This is from the hand of God. We don't know how he recognizes that, but he does. And so he turns around and he asks Abraham, Abraham, what's going on here? And Abraham tells the truth about Sarah being his wife. So now Abraham's got two people mad at him. He's got Pharaoh and he's got his wife, Sarah. Now, I don't know which was worse. They're both, they're, you don't want either. So Pharaoh then recognizes that God's protection is over Abraham and all that he owns. And so he sends them on their way with an order, a letter of protection from Pharaoh. It doesn't get any better in this time period. And what, what God is saying to Abraham through this situation is, Abraham, whenever you try to take matters into your own hands, and you refuse to trust me, it's going to always get worse. You think it's bad now? It's just going to get worse. Next time, Abraham, trust me to protect you. If I can protect you from Pharaoh, I can protect you. Now, Abraham, as you read, and I would encourage you to read the entire story of Abraham, he goes on to pass the next two security tests that God gives him. He grew from this experience. Now, you see, what we tend to do is we think of this life and the next life in two separate categories. We think that they're completely unconnected. You know, we build a life here, and then when we die, of course, we realize whatever we've built, we don't get to hang around and enjoy anymore. It goes away. And then we build a new life in heaven. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, you recognize that the decision you make about Christ completely impacts your eternity, but even Christians sometimes kind of have a separate view of what happens here in the life that we experience in the next life. But the truth is this, we build a foundation here 
And foundations are invisible. You can't see them. You can see what's built on them, but you can't see the foundation. And the foundation that we are building in this life, the internal invisible foundation that we are building in this life is connected to the next life. What we build in faith here carries over into eternity. You see, what we're really building here isn't something visible. I mean, there is a visible component to it, but that's not, that's not the value. It's not the house that you may eventually pay off or the stuff or the business that you build or the accomplishments. Those are fine, but all in the process of doing all of that, you are laying the foundation of an inner life, of a relationship with God or not. And that foundation transfers over. Your career doesn't transfer. Your house doesn't transfer. Your bank account won't transfer. The foundation transfers. The visible stuff, poof. The invisible stuff, no, no, that, that carries over. That's why it says what, what we build, when we, when we build this foundation whose architect and builder is God, we do that as we face the trials and learn to trust him. So the outcomes of life, the visible outcomes, are never the primary point. The primary point is, who's the architect of what's going on inside? Whose words, whose plans are we trying to line our life up to? And who's actually building this inner world? Is, Is it our plans? Is it our thoughts? Or is God the architect and builder of this foundation? So that's the first test we're all going to face, and that is the security test. The second test category is the confusion test. This is when what God has said and what we are experiencing doesn't line up, and we get confused. Hebrews 11, 11 through 12 describes this test for Abraham. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was unable to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and I love this line, and he is good as dead, <laughs> with, you know, speaking of in terms of having kids, as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Now again, if you read the entire story of Abraham, you you realize very quickly that Abraham did not always consider him faithful who had made this promise, that he would have a son and that son would, through that son would be this new nation. Abraham really struggled with this one. Because God had said this would be true, but for so long it wasn't true. It didn't line up. Now if you read the entire story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, it takes probably only about 30 minutes to read the story. But you have to understand, the story that you read in 30 minutes covers the span of decades. And unless you keep track of the timeline as you're reading, you don't realize how much of the time Abraham was just simply waiting and wondering, well, God, are are you going to, this year, is this the year that you're going to grant a son or not? And that's really the way life often is. You know, you do what God says, and then you wait. For all to work out. And then you wait some more. And, and then you wait some more. And then you start wondering, well, is this going to work out or not? And that's the way it was for Abraham. The story of Abraham starts in Genesis 12, when God told Abraham to pack up and head south. At that time, 
God told Abraham, he gave him the promise that he would be the father of a great nation. The problem, of course, was he didn't have any kids. He didn't have a son. He was 75, his wife was 65, too old to have children, as it says in this category, as good as dead. But God promised him a son. So here's the test question in the confusion test. Will I trust in God's word? God has said this. Will I trust in what he said? For us, as we read the page of the Bible, God says it makes a lot of great promises. Will we trust in what he said and do what he said? Well, the real question behind this one is, for how long? I mean, if God spoke and the next day we woke up and it happened, we would have no problem trusting in God's word. But you see, God's plan is bigger than us. And what that means is we often have to wait and sometimes a really long time before we see evidence of God's words coming true. In some cases, we won't see some of the promises of God come true in this life. We'll, we'll have to wait till the next life until, oh, I see how it all worked out. But in this life, we, we spend a lot of time waiting. And that takes faith. When you just have to trust in the word and you don't see it work out. So we all start out with short-term faith. You know, we'll, we'll wait for God to come through for a week, maybe a month, maybe a year, but we all have our faith limit. So to grow our faith, God is, he knows what our limit is. We, we really don't, but he knows what it is. And so he's always working on the edge of our faith limit, trying to expand it, take us just a little bit further to deepen and grow our faith. So God promises Abraham a son, and Abraham hears nothing more about God's promise for eight years. Now just think of that, eight years, nothing. You know, every month, Sarah, anything? No. Nope. Still good as dead, eight years. So remember, time is not on their side on this one. They're only getting older. So finally, God appears to Abraham again after eight years, and he promises to to bless Abraham, and then he says this in verse 2 of Genesis 15, but Abraham said, or Abraham responds to the blessing promised and says, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. I don't even have a, an, an heir from my bloodline. Now, do you notice what's been on Abraham's mind for eight years? First thing out of his mouth, uh, God, no kids, I remain childless. In case you haven't noticed, you don't hear crying, you don't hear anyone running around, nothing. So, any kids? That's what's on his mind. When is God going to come through? So in response, God shows Abraham the stars and says his descendants will be greater in number than the stars. Now, I, there's no record of what Abraham says at this point, but I know what I would say. <laughs> Probably something like, God, this is amazing. Could we start with one? Let's just put one star up and then we can... We can paint the sky after that. But let, let's, just get, let's just get one going here, and then we can, we can talk about how many after that. Three years after this exchange, okay, so this is now 11 years, after the original promise, Abraham is now 86, Sarah is 76. And Sarah, well, she's had enough. She's reached her time limit. She had enough waiting. We read this in Genesis 16 too. So she says to Abraham, Sarah does, the Lord has kept me from having children. You hear that? He promised 
He's not kept his word. So it's time for us to take matters into our own hands. Go sleep with my maidservant, which sounds weird to us in this culture, but it was a common practice in ancient culture if you couldn't have kids. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So a child is born, not the one that God promised through Sarah, but another son. And after this son is born, God tells Abraham that by not waiting for him to make good on his promise, Abraham is introduced an incredible conflict into the world. This son's name is Ishmael. And God says, Ishmael will live in hostility with his brothers throughout the generations. Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab race. The hostility that God described continues to this very day. Thirteen years later now, God appears again to Abraham, and this time he gives him a new name. His name had been Abram, A-B-R-A-M, which means exalted father. And he changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many. Again, we don't know what Abraham thought, but I know what I would think. I would think something like, more like father of none. (laughs) I appreciate the bump in the name, but we still got to start with one, right? Now, Abraham does not respond to this new name in faith. He laughs at his new name. Here's the verse that records his laughter. God gives him this new name, and he just, he laughs. This is getting ridiculous, God. Later that same year, God appears to Sarah and tells her that she's going to have a child within a year. She also responds. She just busts out and starts laughing. Come on, God. This is getting cruel now. She laughs. One year later, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And God tells them to give this son the name Isaac. You know what Isaac means? Laughter. Isn't that interesting? It's God's way, I think, of saying, my word is going to get the last laugh. I mean, every time they called Isaac, it's like, hey, laughter, come here. Laughter, stop hitting your sister. Laughter, could you go fetch? Every time they called his name, they would be reminded, you know, we got to the point where we were laughing at God's words. Now we're looking at God's word. God's word will be done. It's just not going to be on our timetable. You know, the reason that so many give up on faith in God is not because they don't have any faith, but their faith is short. They draw the finish line at some place in time, and they may not even be aware of it, but they've got this sense, you know, if God doesn't come through by now, I'm done with God. But you see, God hasn't drawn the timeline wherever we draw it. And so when things don't work out, in that time frame, then that person has no reason to go on and trust God anymore. And that then brings us now to the third kind of test, and this is the hardest test. This is the loss test. This is when someone we love dearly is at risk or is taken from us. This test is recorded in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith... Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. 
Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So here's what happened. 25 years after God made the promise, the promise was kept. Isaac was finally born. Finally, Abraham and Sarah had a son. I mean, can you just imagine the joy? First of all, you've got a couple that have spent their whole life trying to have kids, and they can't have kids. There's no medical science to do anything else about it. They, they're just going to go childless. And then at 65 and 75, God promises them a son. 25 years later, they have a son. Just imagine the joy. Then now imagine the horror when a few short years later, God tells Abraham to offer his son to him as a sacrifice. This makes no sense. I mean, this was the practice of the pagan people of the area. This is what they would do to their false gods in the attempt to try to increase the harvest or to bring blessing. They, they would offer something that they valued more than anything else and hope that this would appease the gods. This is not the way the one true God operates. That's a lie. Abraham knew this. Why would God want me to do this? And, and, and this is the promise. This is the son he promised. He made it clear this was the one. None of this made sense. But Abraham solemnly puts his son on that altar and is about to plunge the knife into his chest when the angel of God stops him. What is this about? This not only reveals for Abraham how his faith has grown, this reveals to us the ultimate and the hardest test that we're all going to have to get ready for. And that is the test of losing someone we love and eventually facing death ourselves. This is the toughest test. Every one of us are going to face this test. And it is the hardest of all tests. And when we face this test, the question is this, will I trust in God's plan? Now, when life is good, yeah, it's easy to trust God's plan because God's plan and my plan kind of look the same. But what about when life is bad? Well, that all depends on how bad. And we all have our limit. You know, the limit of our faith is not a function of the greatness of our faith. It's a function of the history of our faith. This is very important to understand. Abraham, in this moment, when he was about ready to say goodbye to the promised son, he didn't just dig deep in that moment and find the emotional resolve to just trust God ugh, so deeply. No. What does it say that he did? It says he reasoned. You don't see reasoned and faith together usually but they belong together. The word here, reasoned, means to take inventory. You know what Abraham did? He took inventory. He went back over his life, and he went all the way back to the day when God said, hey, I want you to head south. And that time when he blew the test with Pharaoh and God protected Sarah in spite of his failure. And the, the times when he had doubted that God would ever provide Isaac, and then he had and all the other tests that we haven't read about. And he took inventory. He counted and he remembered the storyline of God's faithfulness to him. And because of that inventory, 
He reasoned that, well, I bet you God can raise the dead. So I'm going to trust God. Now, you don't, you don't get to this level of faith by studying about God, by thinking about God. You get to this level of faith by actually taking steps to trust God and then building a history of seeing him come through over time. You see, when, when time is, times are tough, especially when we face loss, we all turn to something. Everybody has faith. It may not be in God, but everybody's got faith. Everybody's got a foundation. Everybody's standing on something other than their own two feet. And those choices that we make over time, the foundation that we're building, that becomes our faith, our history. Some decide, you know what, I'm going I'm to turn to a substance. I'm going to turn to alcohol. And whenever they face loss, whenever they face pain, that is what they stand on. And so when they face the next loss, they open up this, the warehouse of faith, and they've got a history of trusting that substance. And so what do they do next? They grab based on their inventory. They grab the next thing. It's all they know. It becomes their faith, their God. It's what's come through for them in the past. It may be a small come through, but it's something. Some have built a life history of turning to money. You know, whenever things are hard or tough, you know, they, they can get away, they can buy something, they can add more to their net worth. And that's, again, you open up the warehouse of their faith and it's just stocked full of, of years and decades of this is what I've turned to. This is the foundation. This is what I've really been trusting in. This is why change is so hard for all of us. Because real change occurs at the foundation. And the foundation is faith, what we trust in. And so you can't just build 50 years and all of a sudden in one day decide, you know what, I'm going to be a completely different person. You can make that decision, but pulling off that decision is a challenge because what you're really doing is you're swapping out inventories. You're exchanging a warehouse full of history for an empty warehouse that has got no history to it. You're changing faiths. So a person who has developed faith in money through a long history of turning to it, they're not just going to suddenly under pressure say, you know what, today I'm going to do something different. They're going to run back to their inventory. So when a person decides to follow Jesus, what they really decide to do is they decide to open up a new warehouse of faith and they decide to start stocking it with the inventory of days in which they have trusted God and they've seen God come through. That takes time. But, you know, if, if you're old and if you feel like, you know what, I've, I've been stocking the wrong warehouse, that's okay. How old was Abraham when the story started? 65. You don't have how many days you got left, but you got some. Even if it's only a month, get a month's worth of memories. Start stocking it with trusting God. Find out something that God has said in his word and do that. And then find something else and do that and build a history. You see, we're all preparing for the day of loss. When we really find out, what are we, what are we standing on here? Well, what we're standing on is what we've always been standing on on that day. You know, when our kids were young, one of the things they liked to do is 
sit in the driver's seat of our car and pretend that they were driving the car. You know, for a while it was kind of hard to get going because one of them would want to sit in the driver's seat and grab, you know, go grab up on the steering wheel and go, you know, make those sounds like they like to do. Now, of course, when they were making those noises of driving, they were not actually learning how to drive, right? They're just making the noises. Now, the noises indicated that, you know, one day they would learn how to drive, but not just by making the noises. And I say that because I think it's easy sometimes for people to think that they are growing in their faith. Maybe they've made a decision to follow Christ, and they think they're growing in their faith by making the noises of faith. You know, by studying the Bible, that's a great thing to do. But that's not a step of faith. A step of faith is when you take what you've read and you do what you've read. That's how faith grows. Or maybe they think, you know, I just got to attend church. Again, I'm so glad you're here. This, this is a great step. This is very helpful in supporting you to build faith. But no faith is growing here. You're just sitting here. Now I'm talking. You're considering. But you haven't done anything. This afternoon, you might get some chances, but not here. So when we gather here or, you know, you read the Bible, you're, you're just kind of, you're making the noises of faith. But, you, but you're not actually growing in faith. And if all you've ever done is make the noises of faith and then you find yourself on the road, it's not going to be enough. In reality, you're going to have to have learned how to take the steps of faith. And the thing about the faith test, especially this lost test, you cannot cram for this test. You can't cram for this. You can't get ready in a week or a month or even a year. I don't know how much time we've got, how much time you've got. We're all going to face loss. We're all going to face our own death. And at that point, one of the saddest things you can do is open up the warehouse of your faith and find it empty. Now's the time to start. Start wherever you are, however old you are. If you say, I don't know what to do next, what that means is you're probably not reading the Bible. So start reading it. Find, God will speak to you about the next thing and then do that. You see, we're all laying a foundation of faith. We're all building on something that we really, really trust. The question is whether the architect and the builder of that foundation is you or God. That'll make all the difference in the tests of life and especially all the difference in the life to come. So as it says about Abraham in Hebrews 11.10, he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the heads up. For those who have gone before us in faith, who have pointed to us the foundation that endures, and by default, the ones that don't. Father, we admit we live in a time and a culture that's all about the visible. It's all about what we can see. It's all about the structure and not about the foundation. God, I pray that you'd speak to each of us about the condition of our real foundation. You know what it's like. We may not fully know. Show us. Help us to see the next steps that we can take to prepare for the next, next tests that are coming. We pray this now in the name of Jesus.
Amen.